And it's interesting for the white supremacists and neo-Nazis who would clearly have a dislike for people that are not like them. There's this weird affinity toward jihadis. They talk about white jihad. They feature Osama bin Laden in some of their propaganda. There's almost this level of respect for what Al-Qaeda and groups of its ilk have achieved in terms of destruction and damage and kind of what they view as success in pushing back again, because many of these groups are against the U.S. government. So they have that in common, too. That was Colin Clark, the Director of Policy and Research at the Sufan Group since January and a Senior Research Fellow at the Sufan Center. Colin Clark is one of the world's leading researchers on terrorism and political violence. His most recent book is After the Caliphate, The Islamic State and the Future Terrorist Diaspora. Colin Clark has worked with many research institutes dedicated to the study of terrorism and counterterrorism. For 10 years, he worked at the RAND Corporation until recently he taught at Carnegie Mellon University. Let me add that today's podcast is part of a larger project conducted jointly by the Center on National Security at Fordham Law School, my home base, the Middle East Institute, and the Combating Terrorism Center at West Point. The project is titled Recrudescence, the Third Wave of Terrorism. Hi, Colin. Welcome to Vital Interest Podcast. Hey, Karen. Thanks so much for having me. No, I'm delighted to have you here. So we have a lot to talk about today, and we're going to try to get to it all. I wanted to start with talking about today's transnational jihadist terrorism. There's been a number of articles, some of them written by you recently, about vigilance, about ISIS and Al-Qaeda. Let's start there. How would you assess what's going on? What's the trajectory? Is it a growing threat? There's a lot going on, and this is good timing. You know, I've got an article that should be out pretty soon with uh, Barak Mendelssohn, who I think is one of the world's leading experts on Al-Qaeda, where we kind of step back and take an assessment. You know, we do a global snapshot of what is happening with Al-Qaeda, what is happening with ISIS. And in many ways, there are some similarities. I think in both organizations, we're seeing a move toward decentralization. So power devolving from core leadership. In the case of ISIS, that's in Iraq and Syria. In the case of Al-Qaeda, that's in AFPAC. But autonomy, you know, kind of increasing among the affiliates, the franchise groups, and, and the branches worldwide. We're seeing growth in parts of sub-Saharan Africa, and we're seeing these franchise groups hurting in other parts of the world, depending on where we look, whether that's Libya, the Sinai Peninsula in Egypt, Afghanistan, or, or elsewhere. So what you're saying is we're seeing splinter groups with a less hierarchical structure, but you're also seeing interconnectivity with these groups. And so you're seeing a proliferation of groups. Is that correct? It's different. It's hard to measure it and quantify it and say it's more. We see minor fluctuations year to year, right? When we look at terrorist attacks, there may be more attacks one year, but there may be more plots the next. And sometimes we're saved by terrorist ineptitude. And as we'll get into later, sometimes more counterterrorism success. I, I wouldn't say that what we're seeing is splinters, but what I think are the affiliates and franchise groups of the big two organizations, Al-Qaeda and ISIS. To some extent, there, there is some splintering at local levels. But what we're seeing really is the fact that the leadership of both organizations is under immense pressure. And rather than dictate orders, we're seeing the, the leaders of the respective groups trust these regional affiliates more so, mostly out of necessity. They have to. They're they're devolving autonomy down to the lower ranks. The trade-off becomes these franchise groups and affiliates have different agendas sometimes than the core. The core elements want to attack the West. These groups that are in the Sahel or in the Horn of Africa or elsewhere it's a parochial issue, right? They're dealing with kind of the nitty gritty on the ground, tribal politics, some of these other issues. So there's a divergence of interests, which is good for, for us in many ways. Yeah. And you anticipated my next question, which is what's different from the affiliates and franchises than the central organization? 
And also, has the message of the central groups changed? Well, the, they've been consistent in the fact of, you know, kind of rolling out the same old, same old, Who, who's the enemy? Well, it's the West, it's the United States, it's Israel. But what we have seen is that the propaganda machine of both of these organizations, which is really run by the core, has started to elevate what's happening in Mozambique, in the Democratic Republic of Congo, in Mali. Whereas in the past, that was kind of the backwater of global jihadism. Now we're seeing these attacks highlighted. We're seeing these groups with a lot more street cred, so to speak. And you have to you know, have to ask what's driving that? Well, it's because they really don't have good news to report elsewhere. So they're focusing on these kind of you know affiliates that were less relevant for a long time. They've now been elevated, but again, it's because they want to put forth a good news story. And that's where the quote unquote good news is happening because they're fighting against security forces that are weaker. They're occupying you know, failed states and ungoverned territories where there's high levels of corruption. It's a lot easier to recruit. And frankly, they're more on par with the security forces operating in this area, but it's more of a one-to-one match. And so they're often able to overpower them. They don't have to rely as much on asymmetric means. They can go toe-to-toe in an almost conventional sense. That's really interesting. I'm just kind of wondering, how should we think about the drivers? If the message isn't new, do you see the drivers as being somewhat new in, in these recent years where Syria and Yemen have contributed to numerous displaced persons, right? Stateless persons. Are there new drivers? And if so, what are they? It depends is, is the real answer. In the Middle East, it continues to be sectarianism. That is a, a primary driver of a lot of the violence and terrorism that we're seeing. The fact that ISIS tends to, a lot of its messages focused on the Kufar, the apostates, the Shia, and that's the legacy of kind of Abu Musab al-Zarqawi and AQI. Mm-hmm. That was an initial split. If you go all the way back to the mid-2000s, if you remember the famous letter that was intercepted, Ayman al-Zawahri sending a note to, to Zarqawi, essentially saying, go easy on the Shiites. They're still Muslims at the end of the day. We should be attacking the the West and the American soldiers. Zarqawi had a totally different agenda. His agenda was to spark a civil war in Iraq, which he believed would drive recruits into the arms of AQI. And and he was right. In in many ways, he did. ISIS-K in Afghanistan, following a similar playbook there, targeting Shia, that group has been weakened, but we've seen it retains the ability to launch spectacular attacks with impunity. They've targeted a hospital, a maternity ward last year that was predominantly attended by Shia, Hazara. So, I mean, really brutal beyond the pale stuff, which has kind of been ISIS's calling card. But that's going to look different than what we saw in Southeast Asia, in the Philippines, in uh, Marawi, for example, local kind of dynamics there. There, you've got 30 years, a legacy of conflict between kind of local actors and and the state, and and there's been friction there. So it really depends where you look. I mean, what Libya looks like could be totally different than what's happening in the Caucasus. And so you have these, you know, many of the same drivers, but the dynamics shift over time. And a lot of that has to do with, with geopolitics. It's really interesting to think about how COVID has impacted all of this. There's a lot of speculation. And what do we really know about the impact of COVID so far on terrorist groups? And, and what are the possibilities? What are the questions that are being raised about it? Yeah. So one is that COVID-19 has impacted security forces far more than it has terrorist groups, freedom of movement, right? It's kind of confined some of the security forces to their barracks. They haven't been able to be out on patrols and on missions, and that's kind of seeded the momentum to terrorist groups. Another is that it's been a huge boon for recruitment and and fundraising because people are confined to their homes. They're consuming a lot more propaganda, a lot more disinformation. And in some cases, 
their grievances are aimed at the state, either the the inability or the unwillingness to provide social services, which is an often one of the kind of ways that these groups look to recruit new members, right? They, they blame the state and they say, look, we're, you know, we can fill the void. Look at Lebanese Hezbollah, right? I mean, that's a perfect example. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's almost a state within a state, right? They have garbage collection. They have, right. uh, you know, their own construction company. So there's all these different ways that terrorist groups seek to acquire political legitimacy and, and they're doing it through, through COVID. In terms of tactics, have the tactics of terrorists changed in recent years? We've seen a lot of the same tactics, low, you know, low intensity ambushes, sniping, hit and run attacks. We've seen fewer suicide bombings because there's fewer targets, right? And that's another, that's one of the plus sides of COVID. People haven't been out at the market. People haven't been attending concerts, things like that. I do fear that when some of the restrictions begin to be lifted, that we're going to see an influx of attempts, maybe plots, because people have been cooped up. And now all of a sudden, they have a range of soft targets that they haven't had for the past you know, 12 to 18 months. And, and that's a big concern. I think one of the distinctions I would make is insurgent groups using terrorism as a tactic or actual terrorists right, conducting attacks. A good example of the, the latter would be the Vienna attacker. Right, the attack that we saw, where it was a lone attacker, mm-hmm. uh, and and he went on a shooting rampage in in Vienna. He was inspired by the Islamic State. That's going to look different than something that Al Shabaab is doing in Somalia, where that's really an insurgent group that's using suicide bombing, that's using IEDs and AK-47 small arm light weapons attacks as a tactic itself. But their goal, they're very much insurgents in that they hope to defeat and take over the state. I want to come back just to the refugee camps and the the families camps for families of ISIS. You know, I I know that every now and then we read about families being moved out of these camps, but for the most part, the solution of what to do with these individuals alleged to be families of ISIS who have either been captured or killed. What do we think about that? And and there's some worries about having all of these people in these camps and just feeding a new wave or part of a new wave of terrorism. Are those legitimate fears? Are they overblown fears? And and is is anybody tending to these camps in a way that has a solution in sight? It's heartbreaking, you know, to start with. Yes, there are some people that ended up in these camps that did the wrong thing, right? That yeah. knowingly joined a terrorist organization. I, I want to be careful to avoid the the trope of the jihadi bride, right? People that were tricked and duped and ended up there. Yes, that that happened in some cases. In other cases, some of the women that are in Al-Hol today are, you know, among the most ardent ISIS recruiters. And they'll tell you in interviews, we've seen them, that they want to raise their kids to become jihadis, jihadi fighters. The conditions are deplorable. And the fact that, you know, we have all of these children there suffering, this is really the only life they've known. Western countries in particular, I think, have a moral obligation to to bring them home. I mean, I'm a big believer in repatriation. The resources are there, but it's an issue of political will. When you strip people of their citizenship, right, when you take their citizenship away, you're forcing them to be citizens of the Islamic State, because that's the only state that's going to take them. And so I do think it's a very myopic approach to leave these people there. It's very cruel and inhumane, but there are complications. I don't want to make it seem like it's so simple. As you know, there are complications related to evidence, right? To to be able to prove that some of these folks committed crimes. Is it battlefield evidence? Can it be used in a court of law? If people are sent to jail, there's the risk of prison radicalization. And in European countries, the sentences tend to be much shorter. So you're then dealing with concepts like recidivism. It's a very complex issue. At the same time, this isn't a new issue. It's not like we've just started thinking about it now. We've had years to get this right. And it's been a policy of kick the can down the road, frankly. 
You know, you touched on the identity issue. If you're stateless, then the Islamic state becomes attractive, which is why having a group to belong to, having an identity that you can share with others, belonging is such an important idea. And you're right, it's something that we haven't quite grasped with, but you've written a lot about the diaspora. This issue of identity, you know, is front and center to how we think about a diaspora. So can you just talk a little bit about how these two things, you know, overlap? Yeah, I mean, I think it's really important when we talk about identities, right? Because if you look at the countries that people came from to become foreign fighters and join the Islamic State. So many came from you know Western countries. What is it about a kid that's born in the Banlieues of, of Paris, you know, whose parents are are from, let's say, Algeria or Tunisia, but he, you know, he's not from there. He doesn't feel Algerian, he doesn't feel Tunisian, but he certainly doesn't feel French. Right. He's not accepted for whatever reason in his society. And I think that lack of identity, it creates a vulnerability for people. And so they're looking for an identity to latch onto. And the Islamic State, in many ways, filled that void. I mean, they knew what would resonate with people. The other part is a lot of my research, including my, my first book, Terrorism Inc., it looked at the role of diaspora communities in financing and providing propaganda support. Mm-hmm you know, providing all forms of support to terrorist groups. But I think there's another project out there, and and there have been some scholars that have written on it. But what about the role of diaspora communities in peacemaking, right? People that have the credibility to come into these communities and say, I'm one of you. And and, and look, if we're going to get over 30 years of civil war in Afghanistan, right? There's now Afghans that are living in Europe and Scandinavia and, and elsewhere that, you know, have been trained as lawyers, as, as mediators, as, you know, public servants. I think we really need to look to tap into that diaspora to find fresh ideas, you know, about how do we end these conflicts and how do we make sure that, you know, we're not back in the same position in in three or four years? There's been a lot of talk, rhetorically at least, throughout the world, but also here in the United States and in the early weeks of the Biden administration about strengthening uh, multilateralism. And in particular, in the counterterrorism sphere, inside and outside of the Biden administration, there's this has sort of been the repeated phrase, we need multilateralism. And with a real focus on, I think, the U.S and what the UN can do. And so I'm, I'm curious how you see that, if you think multilateralism is sort of a way to go and what that would look like. It does have to do something with this whole national identity issue as well, or identity issue. So just how do you see that? So I think the, the UN is a great venue. We need it. And, and I'm all for multilateralism. I guess where I'm somewhat jaded, and this is just from, from experience and years of working in the field, is we do all this great research you know, we learn the ins and outs of these groups, the organizations, the ideologies, and then we get to the end of the report and it comes time for policy recommendations. And in so many ways, they just seem tacked on. They, they don't yeah. seem like they've been thought of throughout this process, right? And after a 300 page report, there's a bulleted list and I can already tell you what it's gonna say. Strengthen the rule of law, counter corruption, promote good governance. And I'm always left thinking like, no kidding. like. How do you do that, right? We know what to do. The challenge becomes, how do you actually do that? And too often, that's just not the reality on the ground. You know, when I worked at RAND, it was in the the heydays of counterinsurgency research. And when you actually were on the ground, as I was in Afghanistan in 2011, and you talk to soldiers that are out there doing the fighting, 
you know, they're telling you a very different story than what you'd find in field manual 3-24, right? Because it just often doesn't work like that. So I think we need to be a little bit more creative and flexible in the way that we conceive these things. But you're right, it absolutely does tie back to identity at the end of the day. You know, we started from a pretty low point in terms of our understanding after 9-11. I mean, Afghanistan was a part of the world we largely neglected. I'd say South Asia as a region was evidenced by the fact that we were sending over Arabic speakers to Afghanistan, right? Like that that's your starting point. (laughs) Well, we've now got 20 years under our belt and we've got people that are extremely knowledgeable about these things, but it shouldn't get to that point where it takes us two decades to figure out what the root causes and drivers are, what these societies look like, how they operate, et cetera. You know, and I think that that goes to the heart of some of the things you and I do, which is education, right? Teaching students, preparing them to go into a world that is truly global in nature, right? It's no longer just about Western Europe. That was a a large part of my focus growing up. I mean, that was the part of the world that quote unquote mattered. Now everybody wants to study the Middle East and South Asia, but it's a big world. What is globalization? You know, this is always the the cross-border movement of people, goods, and ideas. I try to boil it down to the simplest point possible. We've hit the pause button on that during COVID, but I think we're going to pick up where we left off once things are safe again. And now with technology layered on top of that, I think the nation state in some ways is becoming less relevant as a unit of analysis than it has been at you know any previous point. So I just want to focus a little bit at home. I think it was in 2017, you testified in before Congress. And you made a comment about the United States not really having to worry about terrorism in the way the rest of the world had to worry about it. And I thought it was, although many experts think that, very few actually want to say it out loud. We've seen a decline in terrorism indictments, prosecutions over the past three years since you, you know, gave a little bit more since you gave your testimony. Would you still stand by that? So that hearing was specifically about the Islamic State and Al-Qaeda, so terrorist entry into the United States. And a big part of what I was talking about was geography. I mean, the fact that we were surrounded on two sides by oceans, that you couldn't just migrate from Iraq and Syria to the United States and, and launch an attack like we saw with Paris, November 2015, Brussels, uh, March 2016, that back and forth movement of foreign fighters from Europe you know, through Turkey into the conflict zone and back and forth. We were more insulated by that. Our main concern was HVEs, what we use the term at the time, homegrown violent extremists that were largely inspired and motivated by ISIS propaganda. Well, now that the, the physical caliphate has been kind of destroyed and taken away, that's much less of an issue because we don't have this propaganda being pumped out 24-7, radicalizing people on American soil. You do still have cases. And if you, you know, if you follow this stuff, you'll notice cases for material support or other similar type cases. And we have had high-profile attacks on American soil motivated by jihadists. I mean, go to the Boston Marathon bombings. You could look at uh Orlando, right? The Pulse nightclub, San Bernardino. And then even we've we had our first Al-Qaeda, it's debatable over to the extent of the role Al-Qaeda played, but Pensacola, December 20. So, you know, I think we're in a lot better position than the Europeans are when it comes to jihadi terrorism specifically, but we've got a whole other flavor of terrorism on American soil that is just as big of, if not a bigger, and probably is a much bigger threat than anything that we're dealing with from, from ISIS right now. So let's talk about that a little bit. You know, this domestic extremist, right-wing extremism that we're seeing, it's been growing for a while. It feels like it burst on the scene all of a sudden, but actually it's it's been there. We've noticed it. There've been killings and attacks. A lot of terrorism experts who focus on jihadist terrorism are talking about similarities 
between what we're seeing in the United States and what we've been seeing abroad for decades. The question is, what are those similarities? So I think it's important to note that there are a lot of similarities between these two, and there's also important differences. In our September 2019 Sufon Center report on the transnational aspects of violent white supremacy, we devote an entire section to, to comparing these two, and we talk about the way that they seek to recruit which there are a lot of similarities. Their use of propaganda, not only the way that they disseminate propaganda, but even some of the themes are similar. The, this focus on purity. For the jihadis, it was being a pure Muslim. For white supremacists, it's creating this white ethnostate, right? They want to engage in Rahoa, racial holy war. And it's interesting for the white supremacists and neo-Nazis who would clearly have a dislike for people that are not like them, there's this weird affinity toward jihadis. They talk about white jihad. They feature Osama bin Laden in some of their propaganda. There's almost this level of respect for what Al-Qaeda and groups of its ilk have achieved in terms of destruction and damage and kind of what they view as success in pushing back again, because many of these groups are against the U.S. government. So they have that in common too. So there's a, there's a number of really important ways that these groups are similar. But I think the thing that I tend to focus on is how are white supremacists, neo-Nazis, other aspects of the far right learning from the jihadis? And there they're studying they're reading Inspire. They're reading all these other you know, publications that jihadis have put out, their primary source research, if you will. They're watching you know, videos of Anwar al-Awlaki, what resonates, right? Because you know, they're not trying to have people focus on Sharia law, but the similar psychological mechanisms that lead people to join terrorist groups are very much at play. And is this again coming back to identity? Identity is a big part of this as well, mm -hmm. right? If you look at, and we, you know, we spend some time looking at monitoring these conversations and seeing the way that people speak to each other, there is a sense of, hey, we're here for you. It's not too dissimilar from the way gangs recruit as well. They pitch themselves as a family. They look for people that are vulnerable and they identify grievances and then provide a solution to those grievances. So if you, you know, if you're struggling and you feel like this country has moved on and it's not for you, and this is really a country of bi-coastal elites, and you know, it plays into a lot of the anti-Semitic tropes as well, like you're never going to make it in this country because this is a country controlled by a cabal of Jewish elites, and you're not one of them, right? You you live in flyover country, all of your jobs have been shipped overseas, but you know how you can get your dignity back? you can join us and, and we're fighting for a white ethnostate. We're fighting for you know a restoration of, of uh, nationalism and pride. We're going to make America great again, to borrow a phrase. There's an anti-modern element to both jihadist terrorism narratives and the right-wing extremist narratives, right? And I'm really glad you brought that up because that plays on another aspect of the future of terrorism that I've been looking into quite closely. It's some of the most creative work I've ever been you know, able to do. I started it toward the end of my career at RAND, doing some work for the intelligence community to think through what does the future of terrorism look like? I mean, you've heard the expression, we're always fighting the last war. And in many ways, I think that's true. So we're well familiar with jihadi terrorism. Now, you'd have to be blind not to see the threat posed by right-wing extremism. It took us a while to wake up to it. And there's a number of reasons why. Part of it is, you know, people didn't want to acknowledge it. But what's happening beyond the horizon? What's just around the curve that the factors and the variables driving it are percolating kind of in front of our eyes right now, but they're not aware of that in three or four years, we're going to turn around and go, ah, how did we not see this coming? And the anti-modernity 
part is, is what I'm referring to because some people have called it neo-Luddite, other people have called it technophobia, but it's almost a rehashing of a lot of the things Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber, used to talk about. Whereas in society, the ubiquity of cell phones, the advent of artificial intelligence, 5G has played a major role in this, is changing our lives and not for the better. And we can get back by striking out an infrastructure. You know, there's still a lot of speculation about the motive of the Nashville bomber on Christmas Day. Many people think he was anti-5G. 5G cell towers have been attacked in Europe as well as in this country. And so how does that play into all of what we're seeing? So, so that's one area that I think is under-researched, but is well worth exploring and kind of digging deeper. Given what you've just said, how do we think about deterrence? How do we think about stopping this before it happens? I think we we haven't quite come to terms with the corrosive nature of disinformation about just how negative some of the things that Silicon Valley has brought to, to our communities has been. We're still kind of grappling with that divide. And I think we need a major campaign in this country focused on digital literacy, teaching people to understand that what they're seeing is authentic or valid or reliable versus things that are not. And it seems pretty basic to some folks, but it really is elusive in the broader American public. And I think it's, you know, it's one of the main factors that lead people to, you know, join extremist groups. QAnon's a perfect example, right? People are reading things, they think that it's real, and it's a massive conspiracy theory that in my mind, it's so implausible. No one would believe this, but here we are. We're, we're conducting some research right now where we're looking at believability scores. When this comes out, you'll be very surprised at the percentages we're seeing of Americans that self-identify as QAnon believers. It's very scary. That brings me to my last question, which doesn't exactly follow from what you just said, but um, what makes you hopeful? <laughs> My kids uh, looking at you know, That's good. Yeah, the, the younger generation and, and thinking that, you know, hopefully that we learn, we learn our lessons, right? We've made a lot of mistakes in the global war on terrorism, but how do we kind of keep the good and, and get rid of the bad? How do we learn what worked and discard what didn't, including scrutinizing communities that, that didn't deserve it? I think there's still a long way to go there. So, so that I think is hopeful. Look, I'll be honest, and this isn't a partisan comment, but just the change from President Trump to President Biden has made me more hopeful in the fact that President Biden, I think he understands it. There's a sense of urgency there. He wants to deal with this threat. Whereas, let's be honest, President Trump in many ways encouraged it. He incited a lot of this violence and he gave top cover to people that really wanted to act in a way that was either racially or ethnically insensitive. And I think he did more to divide this country than any politician in, in my 40 years on earth. And it's going to take a long time to recover from that. So I'm hopeful that we have a new administration that gets it. But I'm also starkly aware of the challenges that face this current administration. And I think there's so many things going on. COVID, the economy, our international adversaries, Russia, China, Iran, et cetera, that where does domestic terrorism stack up on that list? Can it even be in the top five? And so that's a concern that I have. I am a New Yorker, so I have to be pessimistic at the end of the day. I can't be totally optimistic. So, I mean, in a way, one way to think about it, just listening to you is maybe if one thing gets better, other things can get better. You know, maybe it's maybe these threats and these insecurities and these instabilities all feed one another. And so if you can help one, you can help the other. Yeah, we hope for cascading effects, too. I mean, I think the end of COVID in many ways will will be a net benefit because people will be 
at home less. They, you know, they're so tired of being at home that maybe they'll be spending less time in front of their screen consuming this stuff. I think it'll take the the wind out of QAnon sales a little bit, hopefully enough to kind of have people move on. And the fact that we've got more people than ever that are talking about these issues. We've got people working in the countering violent extremism space saying the right thing, right? And I think I'm a big believer in second chances. Now's not the time to dunk on people and make them feel bad for things that they've done. We have to welcome people back. We have communities that have been destroyed by conspiracy theories. Friendships and families have been ruined. So, you know, we need to to look at how to kind of get people back into the fold. Colin Clark, thank you so much for joining me today on Vital Interest Podcast. And for those of you who would like to stay tuned for, to know a bit more about Colin, his life, and his life's lessons so far, listen to the next few minutes for Colin Clark, a short biography. Okay. So did you grow up in Long Island? Where did you grow up? Yeah, I grew up in Long Beach, New York. Long Beach, New York. Uh-huh. And how does one get from Long Beach, New York to thinking about in your case, these global terrorism issues. Is there Was there a moment in your life where you're like, that's what I'm going to do? Yeah. So it's, it's interesting. I, I love Long Beach. It's near and dear to my heart. And you know, my family still lives there. I was very lucky to have the opportunity to go to Chaminade High School, which is an all boys Catholic high school that really kind of opened my eyes to, you know, the, the education was top notch, extremely competitive and history just always kind of clicked for me. So you know, when I went to Loyola College, I was very interested in history and political science. Growing up in Long Beach, I, I grew up in a kind of staunchly Irish Catholic neighborhood. So I was always interested in the conflict in Northern Ireland, the issue between Catholics and Protestants, spent a lot of time studying that. And then my senior year of Loyola, I got the opportunity to study abroad. And I studied at the University of Galway in in Ireland. I was taking political science courses that were largely looking at the aftermath of the Good Friday Agreement or the Belfast Agreement of 1998. We were three years out from that. This was 2001. And so I was really looking forward to studying kind of post-conflict resolution all of these issues. I get to to Ireland on September 1st. We did a 10-day homestay with a a local family. And then I showed up for my first day of class on Tuesday, September 11th. Goodness. uh, 2001. Oh my God. And so I had always been interested in studying terrorism, mostly ethno-national. And and, and now I thought, wow, first of all, what's happening? And, And I'm from a military family, Marine Corps mostly. And, you know, I had my people reaching out, hey, what's going on? You know, you study this stuff. I said, I'll be honest, I have no idea. I'll, you know, I'm embarrassed to say this, but at the time, I, I would have struggled to find Afghanistan on a map. I probably would have come close, but I knew so little about South Asia. I had so little interest in Islam. You know, I really didn't know. And and for lack of a better word, I became obsessed with, with studying Salafi jihadism, with studying Afghanistan and Pakistan, you know, and I just kind of dove in head first. And that led me to graduate school at NYU and and, and then ultimately a PhD in international security policy at the University of Pittsburgh. Any mentors along the way that were transformative for you? I'd say, you know, my role models have always been my parents. I was the first person in my family to go to college. Neither of my parents did. And so I think because they didn't have the opportunity, it was education was always stressed above all else in, in my house. So I credit my work ethic to my parents. But yeah, I've had great professors. I've been very blessed over the years. Lou Claravis at NYU, also Jean-Marc Oppenheim, who I, I took his contemporary Middle East class that first semester. And, you know, he kind of said, you know, for someone that hasn't studied this region, you picked up on things pretty quickly. Have you ever thought about 
going for a PhD. And, and I never had. And I kind of was, that was so encouraging to me that somebody had identified me as, you know, a talented student. And he thought that I was worthy of going that next step. So he, he was a big source of encouragement. And then when I got to the University of Pittsburgh, Phil Williams, who's a, a legendary scholar in studying terrorism and transnational organized crime. And we're still very close to, to this day. At Rand, a guy named Chris Paul was my mentor there and really kind of showed me the ropes. And, and we spent a lot of time driving from Pittsburgh down to the Pentagon and back. And so we had these long kind of car rides to talk about, you know, the way things worked. And, and I, I learned so much about, you know, national security and, well, here's what they tell you, but here's how things really work. Yeah. And I'm, I look back to, to graduate school, how life has come full circle. I was so in awe of the looming tower and, you know, Larry Wright's book and, and reading about Ali, you know, he was a hero of mine, even though I had Ali never- Sufan. Yes. Yeah. And and now I work for him. So it's it's just so strange and almost hard to believe some days that I get to, you know, pick his brain and call him a colleague and a friend with someone that I admired for so long. It's surreal. So the ideas matter, the circumstances you encounter matter, but what actually matters are the people. Yeah. Hundred percent, and and I think institutions. I mean, spending ten years at the Rand Corporation, it's a top-notch think tank. It's been around for seventy plus years. Just some of the smartest people I've ever had the opportunity to work with, and then getting to serve. I, I mean, and I look at it as service of getting the opportunity to work for the Department of Defense and the intelligence community, doing research on things that I think really matter to the national security community. Well, thank you for sharing a little bit of your life as well as your expertise with us. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to today's conversation. We hope it made your day a little brighter, a little clearer, and a little more informed. Join us next time for the newest installment of Vital Interest Podcast. In the meantime, feel free to send us your questions at vitalinterestpodcast.org and to follow us on Twitter at VI underscore podcast CNS. And make sure to check out our daily morning brief, our weekly cyber brief, and our Vital Interest online forum at centeronnationalsecurity.org. Have a wonderful week and please stay safe.